I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, I talk to comedian and filmmaker Bo Burnham. You need to admire something. You need an ideal to strive for. You need to probably embody that ideal in a person to make it tangible, even if that person does fail. There, there's just some structure that can't just be abstracted. We, we need people to embody our values, especially as young people. Bo Burnham first found fame putting his own videos onto YouTube and has managed to turn that into an explosive career in comedy, TV, and film. His approach to stand-up is theatrical, frenetic, self-aware, and thinks Steve Martin spun in a post-internet musical blender. But recently, Bo's taken a break from comedy to write and direct his first feature film, Eighth Grade. It's an introspective and clear-eyed look at the many anxieties that today's youth face. And Josh was great in it. He also got to act in the film. Oh, thanks, Joe. Uh, yes, I, 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 yes. <laughs> that compliment threw me. <laughs> <laughs> How did it feel to go from working with him on set to having him in a podcast booth? It was great to have the chance to ask him some some questions. I wasn't familiar with him before we made the movie, and... Uh, I had a lot of questions as I got to know his earlier work more. But, uh, you know, when we were shooting, we were pretty much consumed with talking about the film. And I was very grateful to get the chance to, uh, to you know, grill him. Well, it was great to be able to see this conversation between you and this clearly master in the making. Here it goes. Hey, Bo. Hi, Josh. <laughs> good to see How you. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really good. Just to sort of set the scene, you originally became known to people outside of your family and small circle of friends yes. by posting videos on YouTube. Yes. Is, that, is that correct? Yes. So I just was wondering, like, do you remember before YouTube existed? And do you remember sort of realizing, at what point you realized that there was this delivery system in your bedroom? To, oh, yeah. I mean, like, I, was that a tangible moment? Yes, like a specific conversation, too, because it was 2006. I was in my high school theater program writing little funny songs in the upright piano backstage, just playing them for my friends. And I told a friend, I want to show this to my brother, who was at college at the time. Uh-huh. And he said, there's this site called YouTube where you can post videos and share them. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and, and when I say that, I sound like, and then I bought a hamburger for a nickel. You know what I mean? It sounds like, I can't believe it's 12 years ago and like we didn't actually know what this thing was. Yeah. And that happens so much in the culture right now where there are these things that are just such cultural standards that we can't believe were actually new words like yeah, less mine was than a MTV decade. I remember the summer when someone said hey there's a channel that's showing music videos all the time and I was like no way I could and, not and I, believe it and I don't think I ever knew MTV as that I mean I guess I had a little bit of that but I knew MTV as like jackass those television right. shows that's what I knew MTV as yeah. Um, so that was yeah 2006 I recorded the video posted it I don't remember the timeline because I've had to remember it so much. I posted these videos. They were little, like, funny song things. They got, like, 6,000 views, and those were all local. So those were all, like, spread from my high school to another high friends school. Friends and... and I remember going to a basketball game, and kids that were in the stands for the other team had seen that and knew who I was. And I was like, oh, whoa, this is very, very strange. Uh, and then it was posted on this site break.com which was this weird like bro humor site that would post you know every day post seven things to a already built an audience of like a million people whatever and that's when like the first viral thing happened it got 250,000 or something views in a day and what did that feel like 
I printed out the comments. <laughs> I was thinking I printed out the comments, which is like the most hilarious, lame, and also analog thing to do. And also, like, the, the, the internet comments, like, half of them were... Things you would never want to print out about yeah. yourself, you I, know what I mean? I was, yeah. It was completely vitriolic and horrible, but it was just very exciting to me. The funny thing is, is I'm, I, you know, I've been known, as I should, as like this YouTube comedian for a while. I posted 14 videos. That was it? Yeah, that, oh, that was wow. it. And then the, all the videos past that are videos of me, you know, posting trailers for a special uh -huh. or something. But right. um, the videos were like 14 songs or something or bits posted in these sort of two to three ch bit chunks the eras of my YouTube experience are like the t-shirts I was wearing in each of the bits, you know what I mean? Um, were there other videos online already that influenced you? Or did you feel like you were really just experimenting on your own? Your no, own? well, there were there were comedians. There was like this uh, musical comedian, Stephen Lynch, who I really loved at the time, Flight of the Concords, uh, I discovered around sure. that time and loved. There were just straight songs that like I'm just biting completely their entire gag. Yeah. Tim Minchin, I discovered as well, who's uh, an incredible Australian mm -hmm. uh, musical comedian, wrote Matilda. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Bill Bailey, There's a, that, that, he's another British musical comedian. Old Steve Martin. But, yeah, it's, it's 16, 17, 18, you know. It's, it's quite, quite a time to be immortalized. You know, let alone for at this point, it's 20 million views for the, you know, second thing I ever wrote. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, yeah, I and mean, that's such a, obviously fame and celebrity uh, is something that you, you seem to uh, address or wrestle with in almost every, uh, I think, aspect of, of your work. I mean, you seem to take the role of having an audience very seriously you as a responsibility. How do you feel about yourself in the role of like a comedian in terms of someone who speaks truth to power in society or, or do you not put that kind of pressure on yourself. It's so strange, you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's like so hard to have this conversation because I've had to try to talk to these points and like, it's a subject that's being so interrogated week to week right now, you know? You know? It's been a great time to have quit comedy like yeah. I did, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's been very funny to like watch from the sidelines as like comedy is being torn down and I'm just smoking a pipe waving at my, you know, former friends as they like sink yeah. uh, to the bottom of the earth, as they probably should. Um, <laughs> I've always just engaged with it because it's, it, to me, it was the first thing that presented itself to me. It was the thing I could never get past, to be honest about the other stuff. Everyone says in comedy, like, you got to be honest. You got to talk about what you're going through. You got to dig deep and be honest. And I'm like, okay. And I get on stage and be like, I'm on stage. You're all staring at me. This is weird. What is happening? You know, I could never get past what was happening to right. be honest about my dad or whatever, you right, know? Right, right. People it, think that's meta, but actually, like, it actually is exactly. Just exactly what's happening. It's, ex yeah. it's literal to yeah. me. It's like, it, it'd be meta to divorce myself right. from what's happening and then try to like talk about, you know, parking meters. So that's at least where it started was that I just had a personal fixation on it because it's what was presenting itself to me. And then why I feel like I've continued with it is because it resonated with the audience's that I was performing for, particularly the young people. It was this weird thing that I, like, totally backed into. I did not... I wasn't intentionally doing this. In a stand-up, you mean? Or did... No, to, to... to, Well, yes, but, but, but separately, like, I didn't intend to talk about celebrity and attention uh -huh. and an audience as a metaphor for what this generation is going through with the Internet and social media, but I found out that that's what was happening. Right. You know, I would get on stage and talk about... Or, you know, and it's... It started in my, you know, late teens, early 20s when I actually started to do 
I, I went from YouTube videos to actually performing live because that's what I wanted to do right. and started, instead of posting little videos, building hour-long live shows, which really need to have a narrative and some sort of meaning to them mm -hmm. for me. And in that process, started to engage with this stuff and would talk about my problems, which my problems were I was, at the time, a 21 or a 23 or a 25-year-old comedian with an audience, with anxiety, struggling with being on stage, struggling with managing, you know, people's expectations of myself, the sort of uh, proper noun version of my own name that you kind of get when you become, you know, an actor or a writer or something. There's like a weird thing where you hear your first and last name and it all of a sudden doesn't sound like yourself anymore. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like this thing people say to you or this thing that's on call sheets or this thing that's written about. Uh -huh. So I wrote about that and I was like, I don't know if anybody is going to relate to this, unless they're a 24-year-old male comedian performing, you know, at the Wilbur Theater. And I would have 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids come up to me after and say, I feel exactly like you. I get it. I'm going like, what? You know? And then I was like, oh, right. They have an audience. They feel like they're performing all the time. The sort of stresses I have as a sort of CD-list comedian have been democratized and given to an entire generation. At least for this part of my career, that was the breakthrough that I realized, like, oh, okay, that's what I'm doing. Did you start to think about your material and the thing, the themes that you wanted to explore in a different way after that? I could just commit to them. When you're up there riffing about, you know, making fun of pop culture, making fun of celebrity and stuff, you can feel like, ah, I'm just being, like, a little thin here and meta and, like, Am I just like doing like 30 rock and stuff? And is there a better way to, and then I realized like, no, there's actually an emotional core to this. And this is tied to the way a generation feels about itself. I found meaning in my work for the first time to other people. I don't know, maybe people will feel less stressed or alone or at least find some commonality in this really uncommon experience that we're all having, which is uh, living out loud, performing our lives. At first I was getting up there going like, Celebrity's stupid and pop culture's this way and pop songs are stupid. But if I was being honest with myself, I was freaking out. I was feeling things during all of this. Sure. And even if I, and even if that feeling is empty and meaningless, that's something to describe. That's an emotion to ground yourself in. Yeah. Also, like I'm also 21. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like so that's also why I'm feeling like meaningless and ungrateful. You know I mean, so like and that was the huge joy I realized that I was given by having a career so young. You know, I was so freaked out because when I got attention when I was 16, I was like. I knew it. I knew I didn't deserve it. Like I knew I wasn't good enough for it in theory. But, you know, having an audience at 16, 17, 18, 19 to, you know, 26 or whatever when I stopped for now, my act couldn't help but grow and evolve because yeah. I was growing and evolving. I was growing pretty <laughs> yeah. rapidly, you know. That's about as, you know, and I finally feel like I've maybe started to settle into a person. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's what happens in your, yeah, by your late 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So aside from the people that you mentioned before, were there other comedians or thinkers that, that influenced you or you thought of as role models? Um, Steve Martin, 70s, early 70s Steve Martin. That was yeah. pretty big, like Carlin, wild and crazy George guy. Carlin. I loved George Carlin. I loved, loved George Carlin. Were you aware of Bill Hicks at that age or did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I liked Bill Hicks a lot. He wasn't, like, my biggest person, though. Um, Steve Martin, though, was just did so much of what I wanted to do, was very silly, had no shame, used props, used uh -huh, music, uh -huh. all these things that when I was starting out in, you know, the late aughts or whatever, like, it was so hacky. It was so hacky to be anything other than someone with, like, a ruffled notebook on stage working through your thoughts all dirty and everything, you know? And I was always, like, I came from the world of theater and was like, if I do a show, I'm going to go up and, like, do a show. Right. Like, I'm going to try. The kind of 
the kind of like you're not going to wing it, or or, <laughs> or appear or or do everything I can to appear like I'm winging it, which uh, is like a right, lot of the right, game, which right. is just like look like you effortless. Don't, yes. Yeah, and I'm like that's I'm effortful. Like that's yeah. I'm just an effortful person. I mean, what really really inspired me was going over doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh-huh. seeing what European comedians were doing and Australian comedians were doing. They engaged with it way more theatrically. But it was a lot of that. It was a lot of theater, a lot of like being in high school, loving like Julie Taymor and Grotowski. And like, I loved being on stage and throwing myself into something. Yeah. But what about politics? I mean, do you think of your work in political terms? Because I know that you personally have strong feelings about, you know, social justice and and politics and and not to put you on the spot, but I mean, do you mm. think of your work in terms of that way, or is there has it been regression in your work in terms of that? There's been some stuff. I mean, when I was 20, I was like, God's not real. And I'm like, now I'm looking back like, cool. <laughs> cool, buddy. <laughs> Good for you. You really buried St. Thomas Aquinas with that one. Um, no, Burn. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's strange. I the, There's an evolving definition of what is political. You know, someone like me, a straight tall, white dude, can be apolitical in exploring himself when other people can't. Anyone else act is called political just by them expressing what it is to live for them. Right. And I don't often come in contact with that. And that is what I'm coming into contact with. Like, now you're actually thinking of yourself as a white person in the world. Yeah. So, like, that's, um, so it does become political, which is good. But I don't know. I, like, so I don't, I don't, yeah, I would need, like, to agree on what the definition of political is. Well, I think there's a morality in my stuff, maybe. That, maybe that... morality is it. But also, I guess I was thinking more in terms of commerce and, and, and yes, capital. Yes. Like, do, yeah. do you feel like capitalism kills everything? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, way, I don't know about I mean, that. Coming out of YouTube in a way before it was as corporate and in terms of how do you be authentic in your art without turning into a... I mean, I think you say, you know, artists are, are manipulating and lying to you. Well, that was part of, like, the fun was just to... It may appear like what I'm doing on stage is like um, actively tearing down the artifice of performance as political critique, but mm-hmm. more it's like a magic trick and fun. Like it's fun for me to play with the things that we're supposed to not talk about when we perform comedy, which right. is I am not saying this for the first time. Uh, I just got you, you to laugh, but I don't care and I'm dead inside and I'm bored right now and you're responding Pavlovian to this thing I've written. And then it's what's spontaneous, what's real, what's happening in the moment, what isn't. Like, those are just fun things to engage with as just sort of like being like a little Machiavellian, like Bugs Bunny character up there to Mm -hmm. just kind of throw stuff to the wall. But also, like, I I feel very passionate about culture and its role. And uh, Terrence McKenna, the great quote, culture is not your friend, Mm -hmm. which I think is like... Again, there could be a huge argument that that is an incredibly white sentiment, too. (laughs) But pop culture, I think, across the board, we can say, is not your friend. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge amount of what I wanted to do with eighth grade, even. You know, there's a certain uh, conversation about representation that that I think is um, great, but not nearly being pushed far enough. And, yeah, I think culture fails 
us so hard. I think it's like absolutely crazy. And I think Trump seems like such a cultural phenomenon. It feels like the tail really started to wag the dog and now we're in trouble, you know? So like, do you feel a responsibility as an artist to, you know, there's a line from your last special that hit me so hard where you talk about, I hope I'm not getting more out of this than you are. That mm. you, you, the performer, aren't getting more out of the audience. Mm. And it just made me wonder if stepping away from stand-up in a way and moving into to filmmaking, if that, if part of the... Um, the thing that appealed to you about that was sort of taking yourself out of the spotlight a little bit and being able to explore themes and things that interest you without having to sort of put yourself center stage. I don't I don't quite know. It's hard because, like, the question of the artist, the danger being the artist getting more out of it than you do, like, and then so quickly the pen, pendulum swings the other way, which it feels like it's kind of going in this moment a little bit which is like if you are not fighting the good fight in your art if your art isn't in itself a fight for the good fight you should sort of be obliterated which is also a fear because i like i'm a huge fan and, and, and i'm not even saying that on behalf of myself i don't even think i kind of make that i think i kind of make at least now nice art that at least i hope is part of the good fight but i'm a huge fan of art that's just like on the person's own behalf and i'm a huge fan of art that is uh-huh from an ego place and it's like sports in a way it's one of the safe places where we can just have egoism be thrown at the wall and all of a sudden we get you know Kanye's fourth album and it's like whoa like that's what (laughs) this is what happens when someone thinks they're a god but then all of a sudden that starts to bleed into the actual world and now we're in trouble let me ask you this do do you feel like you need to sort of master people's desire to know you or to confound preconceptions or yes of course I mean like certainly that answer deserves an honest answer which is that (laughs) I am selectively honest Uh I would say that's what I am I say I would say I don't I don't lie I don't say things I don't believe but there's no reason to say every everything you believe. At a certain point, that's just being responsible. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't think I present a version of myself that is false at all. I just present the versions of myself or the things about myself that I want people to see. But that, see that, and that's sort of what the movie's about. That that performance itself is honesty. Now, yes, that is what being truthful is, and I hope I can, you know, in these conversations, and you know, I, I've been talking to a lot to kids and yeah. then speaking at colleges. Speaking at colleges now is super, super loaded, but I like being there and I like talking with the kids and trying to bring things up and trying to ask questions on their terms because I think I can speak their language, which they have a very specific language right now that's really evolving very quickly. Yeah, you're one um, of the few people because you're old enough, you're just old enough to have come of age in this world of YouTube and social media so you, and the self-awareness that that inevitably breeds. I mean, and you're just old enough to sort of start making art about that. Yes. You know, you're not making it from the vantage point of like someone older yeah. looking down on it. You know, you're still mm. in it, but you're just old enough to have a bird's eye view too, which is a very specific vantage point for someone yeah. in this culture right now, I think. Who better to sort of write about or to, you know, to make a, a piece of art about what it feels like to be figuring yourself out in this age of social media and presenting yourself in public and forever because you've done that and obviously you've yeah. wrestled with that. And I think that gives you a kind of empathy that most people who haven't wrestled with that wouldn't be able to have. Yeah, I think people see it as something frivolous or decorative and not something that's very, very deep. Mm. And like that question you asked is like a very interesting question. How do I want to be perceived right now? How yeah. And you could do it right now, you know what I mean? And I've done it so much that I probably don't have to think about it anymore. You know, but the but the answers to that are for this. I want to be perceived as intelligent, but not uh, arrogant, and uh, intelligent, not pretentious, sensitive, but not passive, empathetic, but not 
saccharine, <laughs> commanding, but not forceful, you know, to feel like I am, you know, like yeah. authoritative enough to be in this position and yet humble enough to be telling this particular story. So it is a complete performance, you know, I mean, in, in so many ways. But isn't that life? Like, like, what is the difference between that and a conversation with anybody, anytime? Don't people get six months into a relationship and go like, who are you again? Totally. You know, you know, so I'm, it's yeah, like... I'm, I'm 20 years in a relationship, I'm still doing that. Yeah, yeah, so it's like, it's, that is what, what I'm realizing, is that like, to drop the shame of what this is, which is presentation, performance, that's what I'm really interested in. And that's what the movie kind of engages with, the performance of life. The gap between me on stage and the people in the crowd is maybe the same distance between our head and our mouth. Do, do you know what I mean? Like the, all of those are gaps. At every moment, we have a chance to lie to ourselves, to lie to the people in front of us, to lie to the world. I, I don't know what to do other than to admit that I'm doing it. But we also are performing to the culture. I'm performing to being a man, to having been born in Boston, to my family, you know, like, uh -huh, uh -huh. what are you but a just like congregation of, of performances that you've forgotten you're performing? You yeah. Know? So like, people talk about, you know, like, oh, kids and social media and the internet and putting themselves out there and making these videos is like, in a way, I think that it, forcing them to wrestle with how they mm. present themselves in the world ends up actually maybe getting to a certain kind of authenticity, maybe that you know, why is that less authentic than how we all exactly. do that? And the, and the only strange thing about it is that it's, it's numbers being put to these abstract concepts. Self-presentation now has like a, it's now been externalized and you can point to it. And before it was just this ethereal thing that we thought was just organic and wasn't. Uh -huh. I'm sorry, 70 years ago, did you all want to talk like this? <laughs> like, did you all come out of the womb talking like this? Right. Or were you looking at each other like imitating I don't know, social media in a very weird way is amplifying, externalizing, speeding up, streamlining the process by which we imitate and perform ourselves to the point where it's like things are being called out. No wonder all these things are uh, being questioned at once. It's, it's very, very strange. And it's, it's culture. It's, yeah. I mean, social media, just even think of that term. Those two words shouldn't be in the same paragraph, let alone right next to each other. You know, social media, that's an insane idea. And, well, and no, what I'm fighting it's... for is the kids' abilities to be able to articulate it because there's nothing about participating on it that gives you the ability to articulate it. And if anything, uh -huh. being on it is actually like the mediums, which they themselves are their own form of communication, yeah. are designed and have a vested interest in not having these conversations. Right. That's like what I mean. Like you're, you're just one leg like, enough out of it to be able to do that. But mm. what I love, and I think one of the reasons why people respond so much to the movie is that it's not dogmatic. It's not saying, like, this is good or bad. It's mm. literally just with such empathy exploring what it feels like to be in that, which is I really feel like all you can do as an artist mm. these days is, is not to come out and say it's good or bad or... or uh, and just to sort of just wrestle with it. Yeah, exactly. It. For me, it's, yeah, it's for me, it's hopefully some form of a, an x-ray or something that goes like, I'm not judging this thing. I'm just showing you how complex it is. Mm -hmm. That like a girl recording a video about being cool in her bedroom is very, very, very complex. Yeah. That's like an incredibly, incredibly deep thing. A 13-year-old presenting themselves publicly, privately to an audience that may or may not be there about a standard of how to act cool that has been given to her through culture decades long that has in itself imitated culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea of mm -hmm. cool, I mean, what a weighted concept. Oh. The, idea, the idea of 
trying to be that. Right. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's yeah. like it's like the first video of eighth grade. You know, uh, being yourself. You know, being yourself. <laughs> what does that who, mean? How yeah. are you? Who Who is being? I, I, I don't you, know. If, I mean, I still yeah, I, I go a, see a movie a now because a, a character that I that I, <laughs> I that I admire want to be like I spend the rest of the day walking around acting like that character, and I think like you know is that is my sense of self that flimsy? Yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah, right, <laughs> you know? right, exactly, yeah. I, you know, exactly. And like even just being around people, you'll leave them, you know, yeah. being a little amped up. And again, I'm not saying these things. I'm not looking at this going, man, that opening video is so deep because I'm a genius. I'm saying that video is basically copied from videos I saw of kids online. Yeah. I was watching these young people post about themselves online with my jaw on the floor going like, oh my God, this is so life. These young women, 13, 14, making these videos, trying to speak themselves into existence to yeah. an audience that they hope is there and actually is not or may be there in the future, that is a better description of what I've been trying to describe for 10 years on stage yes. than I ever made. And that is why I think that you were the perfect person to make this film because I think a lot of people, when they try to address social media or teenagers these days, it's like they either it gets too satirical or they're coming from a, a point that's too removed or too judgmental. Because you spend all this time wrestling with what this means and presenting yourself and your developmental progress you know, in public for all time for people mm. to go back. <laughs> so in the same way, like Truffaut, his movie is about children. He loved children. You can tell his affection mm. and love for children and, and how difficult growing up is, is so authentic and empathetic because he had a difficult childhood. Mm. And I feel like you, people, why they respond to eighth grade so much is is because your deep-seated empathy, not just for... Kayla and, and, and Elsie, but I mean, for all 13-year-olds who are, or, or, you know, people who are just trying to figure out themselves in this landscape, it just feels very true and connected. I mean, I know you talked about wanting to make this film before you got old enough that it felt nostalgic, you know, that yeah. you still wanted to feel connected yeah. to these feelings. And I, it feels emotionally immediate. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I, I always like, I didn't care about eighth grade, quote unquote. YA movies aren't movies that I look to. I wasn't trying to make like a coming of age movie. Like, I don't care about that stuff. For me, I wanted to make a story for me about what it meant, what it felt like to be alive right now. Yeah. And I just saw these kids and I found sort of in writing a girl where I was like, she is to me the most worthy conduit for expressing this. So mm -hmm. like, I'm not sitting there going like, man, I'm making my John Hughes. I love mm -hmm. John Hughes. I'm, not, I'm just saying I'm not going right. like, I'm going to make my part of the being the big canon of coming of age movies. I was going like, I'm making a movie about the human condition with a girl in a Spongebob USB. Yeah. I mean, that's what I felt like. I felt like I was making The Revenant or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> truly. I mean, um, and I had to feel that way. Yeah. Well, I think everyone connects to the, you know, to the 13-year-old girl, girl inside of them. And, and yeah, yeah. Why, and, yeah. That, and, yeah. And I really do think, like, as a culture, we're really, our cultural moment is very 13 right now. Yeah, yeah. And everyone knows you're in the movie. Oh, yes, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I should say that. Is that <laughs> we've worked together and you're, you're a very large chunk, an important chunk of the film. Yes. Just to sort of fill that in, I mean, when I, I got the call to come in and audition for your movie, you know, I, I'm old enough that I, I don't know anything that's really you know, going on in the culture except my own little bubble of, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so I wasn't aware of you. And, I, and it all happened sort of quickly and all of a sudden we were rehearsing and starting to shoot and I, I started watching some of your uh, stuff in my little hotel room and I almost had to, I had to actually had to stop because I'd, I 
would come in the next day and sort of like fan out a little bit and be like, oh man, that song, you were like, uh, oh, okay, I mean, that's cool. I actually was want to concentrate on the scene right now and be like, right, 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 yeah, cool. But did you ever think, because I would have thought, because I would have thought like, you would be like, what is this movie going to be? Because like you would think, because like Elsie, I think, thought the movie would be a little more snappy and pyrotechnic. Elsie Fisher, who plays Kayla. Yeah, Elsie, yeah, 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 plays Kayla. We thought it would be... I don't know, because I'd be if I was you, I'd be a little freaked out, going like, "Oh God, is it going to try to be this like weird, silly like? Are we making airplane?" Because I'm saying that's what my show can kind of look like, you know? Oh no, saying, no, because the script itself, the script itself didn't have that vibe at all. Yeah, the script yeah. itself, so, I mean, I could tell right, right. as soon as I read the script that uh, you, you can tell when something is just written well enough that you're like, oh, "Okay, I'm, I'm already in safe hands," you know? And right, you right. Can tell on the page, that's good. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say because I feel like, what am I making here? If like you know what I mean. Um, here's here's just some random questions. What posters did you have on your bedroom walls growing oh up? Oh my god, this is bad. Like, I came from like a cultural vacuum. Like you need to know that from like <laughs> thirty minutes north of Boston. It's, okay, so my <laughs> posters on my wall were a Simpsons poster. I never watched The Simpsons. Okay, <laughs> a photo mosaic of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> This is really uh, true. Uh, uh, you, know, you know those, you know those like, uh-huh. like up close, you can't quite tell what it is, and you move back, and you're like, yes, yes, oh, you're like, Abe. oh, that's Abe Lincoln, you know, <laughs> yeah. which like, you know, to to just throw your mind to what is happening in a 13 or 14 year old boy's bedroom with a photo mosaic of Abraham Lincoln within eyesight. Um, uh, what was it? It was like a Duke basketball pennant. A Bulls basketball seventy wins from huh. when were they win seventy ninety six? Yeah, I wasn't. Uh... There's a big Velvet Underground poster. So no, yeah, no, 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 I was not no. that. I was not. <laughs> no movies. You know what I mean? Like I was like, you know, I think I, I like watched like Shawshank Redemption and Con Air until I was about eighteen. <laughs> um, Getting better though, but I, I, I that that's a shame, and I have other friends that work in this sort of world we do that like I bond with over that. The fact yeah. like our shame with like I was not like eleven years old like <laughs> watching Bergman, you know what I mean? You were a cinephile. No, right? I was yeah. eleven years old watching like I was nineteen watching Zoolander and like th- this is wanna hear the this is the most incredible example ever that dates me so bad and it's like the most shameful ex- the thing that just oh, like obliterates my artistic integrity or background. Yeah. I first heard of Martin Scorsese through Shark Tale. <laughs> the animated Will Smith movie. Where it's literally like, I heard like, I was like 14. And I was like, oh, the blowfish from Shark Tale also directs movies. That's so dark. You know how dark that is? Um, well, you know, that's good. for, the, for the, the theme of this season is American Masters and standing on the shoulders of giants. Yes, exactly. So, you know, you're, you're standing on the shoulder of Shark Tale. <laughs> Actually, to be fair to myself, though, I was a young theater kid and loved, loved theater. Like, uh-huh. film was just not in my world. Right. I, I mean, I was nine, ten, like, loving, loving Shakespeare, loving, loving theater. And, the, and, and then it wasn't until very, very late, which I think, I hope comes across as an actor that was in my film, our film, is that, like, I just loved acting and working with actors and doing that. And then I wasn't the guy running around with a camera. And uh-huh. then I f- was like, oh, film is this place where I can do that stuff, you know? Like, so I I come from the sort of other world of it. And I'm sort of, you know, catching up on the technical stuff. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, like, you've talked about stepping, you know, taking a break from stand-up. 
you know you were experiencing a lot of anxiety. But do you do you have desires to act in other things? In one of your specials, you, you do a little a little bit of uh, of Hamlet, and it occurred to me I was like, you know what? I actually would love to see your Hamlet. I, I would love to do Hamlet. <laughs> I would love to do Hamlet. Because your, your facility with words and with you know, I, it's, I have, it's pretty astounding. I have multiple. I, I have a lot of them memorized. A lot of the soliloquies memorized. Um, Love, love Hamlet. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to act. Like, I I don't know if it's for me. <laughs> I mean, I think I'd love it more than I'd be good at it. But yeah, I mean, doing eighth grade was it for me. Like, I got to do it because of that. It's probably slightly annoying to be an actor on the other side, but like... I think my style of directing is like I'm. I kind of have to be acting uh-huh. a little. I have to be a little bit in it with the actors. I always like that in a director, actually, because I sort of feel like you're all kind of in it, trying to work it out together, yeah, as opposed yeah, to someone going like, "Why don't you try?" You know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exa- right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Where it feels like, and I've you know been there, just felt like been an actor on a set, feeling like, and it was like it really broke my heart when I first like did a little part in a film and was like. Oh, like this isn't acting at all. This didn't feel like acting at uh-huh. all to me. Like being on a set, you're just sitting around forever, and then people are tweaking lights and, and like, and like you get talked to so little, and it's yeah. like it, you just feel like cattle, and you're not important, and no one cares about you. I'm telling you, Hamlet. You got we got to Hamlet. But was part of the anxiety about being up there every night and doing your show? Was part of it like as more and more people were seeing you? I mean, did, did the anxiety grow as your audience grew? And oh yes. yes, yeah, 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 proportionally. Yeah, it was like literally like when the theaters got to be about two thousand seats, I started freaking out. Mm-hmm. Literally, like twelve hundred was so, too super chill, mm-hmm. and two thousand felt completely abstract and strange because people might you know most people unfamiliar with this, but like. A 1,000-seat theater, you can see everyone's face for the most part, and you can actually pick out individual laughs and uh-huh. people of character. And when it gets to 2,000, it becomes... Basically, like, like 2,000 to an arena is basically just feels kind of the same. Yeah. Because um, even an arena is kind of structured as 2,000 slabs in a circle. Yeah. Um, it just feels completely abstract and strange, and you're just performing for, like, a mass, a thing. Now right. the audience is, like, a thing. Right, right. So that's really strange. But, like, the best part about the movie for me is that, like, I've never been able to watch something I've made like I can watch the movie because I don't. Because you're in it, right? Yeah, because you're not in. Because you're not in it. Yeah, and it's like I don't see my work. I I don't watch eighth grade anymore. Period. But uh, but when I do see it in screen or something, I'm not going like even though I have some of these feelings. Like I'm not going like oh man, look at that cam. Oh oh that camera works a little off. I'm just going like look at Elsie. Look at Josh. Like I just I just watch the performances which are not mine. Right. I can enjoy it. I can just enjoy it. I know I know I'll be able to enjoy that movie forever. I know I'll always always love what you guys are doing up there. Well, how do you feel now in terms of your next cuz now do you feel like there's more of a an I mean, what's he going to do next? Yeah, like, yeah what, I mean know? that's very stressful and yeah. <laughs> right now it's very hard to write, especially like with your I like to think I like try to keep my ear to the culture a little bit. It's uh-huh. like very hard to create in this culture right now cuz th- things are just happening so quick and yeah. and think everything kind of gets loaded very quickly and there's a kind of like a irresponsible freedom that's sort of needed at least in the initial creative stages which is uh you know hard to you know there's you kind of kind of just unload without questioning everything and how it's going to be received well are there other mediums that you're interested in exploring you know i mean the stage i'd love to write for the stage you you want to write a a play maybe yeah play or a musical maybe a musical musical, way way down the line but um do you have any uh, like favorite screen parents in movies you know when when you thought about writing eighth grade and and the father, did you, do you have any other sort of screen parents that mm. you 
that have stood out to you in movies? No, because my initial thought was uh, Peter Falk and Jenna Rollins and Woman of the Influence. Mm. I mean, that, but that's not for this movie. <laughs> I was saying those are my favorite screen parents ever. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but no, I like. I always said that like y- your character was my mother. Right. If anything, right. if it was inspired by anything, it was my mother, which was like. And I just think it's very particular to my generation and people younger than me, which is like our parents were not going up being like, you're lazy and why don't you get, I mean, I'm saying sure people enjoy that, but our parents are not telling us like, our parents are going like, you're so smart. And we're going like, we're not, I'm not, all right? That doesn't help me. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's like a, um, the problem some of us who are lucky enough to deal with, deal with is like excessive expressed love, (laughs) you know, and that there's still an issue there, you know? And that's why I felt like we could bring I could, I could portray that I felt, felt hadn't been portrayed a lot, which is that relationships aren't necessarily fraught in the negative direction. They're kind of fraught in the positive direction, where it's someone looking at you with puppy eyes feeling bad for you. Right, right, right. And it's like, I feel bad for me. Can you, I'd rather, like, give me something to rebel against. I remember feeling, I remember, and also in hindsight, feeling that way sort of against my parents a little bit. Like, I wish I had fought a little more. I wish I had been in an environment that was maybe a little more fraught because I, that like I, this sick joke of my life is that I fell into a world where the thing I was supposed to unlearn was actually reinforced by my career for a little bit. Um, I would perform bow shows for my mother and my sister where Uh I just literally did like hour long whatever I want, songs and jokes and things and then like I ended up doing those for everyone (laughs) and like am I just performing for my mother and my sister? Am I having panic attacks because I'm I don't know, you know. um, But some some artists do that, you know, they end up that way in that position because no one listened to them, you know. I mean, I remember meeting, you know, I think, I remember, you know, meeting the actors talking, speaking about, uh, you know, General Rollins and Peter Fogg, I remember meeting Seymour Cassell, you know, when mm. I was young, and he goes, which parent, you know, like, ignored you? You know, we have the whole unlicked cub theory of artists, mm, you know, that, mm. like, there were all these people who, like, didn't get enough unlicked love or attention. Cub, I love that. The unlicked cub, it's like, you were just, and you're like, look at me, look at me, look at yeah. me. Yeah. I wasn't, I was, I was a you licked, licked cub, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's its own form of, I had to, like, learn a strength on my own. I was given a lot of strength. I mean, there's so many pros. I mean, there's so many pros where, like, I mean, I feel like my mother gave me all of my empathy. Not, well, that sounds mean to my father, but like um, my true, whatever my strength is yeah. as a creative person, I feel like I got from my mother, who isn't an explicitly creative person, but is creative in other ways. She's a hospice nurse. But yeah, that, that, uh, I, I feel like I'm a sensitive person yeah. that doesn't take criticism well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause like I wasn't <laughs> criticized as a young person that much, you know? And that's like, there's a lesson to learn, you know. There's definitely like we're definitely a generation of we're definitely entitled and coddled a little bit, for sure. We can admit that and also not be like, you know, some neocon like right wing person right. like the college campuses are crazy. You know what I mean? Like, there's a way to um, there's a middle ground there. Admit that. Yeah. Admit that. Like, yeah, there's there's a way for us to toughen up without inheriting all of the problems from our fathers. I mean, there's a way uh-huh. to toughen up without becoming, you know racist, sexist, yeah. bigoted patriarchs. Repress silently. Yeah. Like, and yeah. there's a way for all of us to, you know, not just them, like for all of us to uh, become resilient and strong and, and not look to the world for approval, which, uh, yeah, social media is not helping. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I think that's working against us. Is Would you say the idea of a role model is an outdated concept? Interesting. We're not going to get rid of religion. That's my answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, 
that's like the the idea of anything is the idea of structure and archetypes and you know you need to admire something you need an ideal that you, to strive for you need to probably embody that ideal in a person to make it tangible even if that person does fail I'm much more ambivalent about this stuff than I used to be. You know, I used to just tear all this stuff down and say, get rid of it. And then I realized, like, there, there's just some structure that can't just be abstracted. We, we need people to embody our values yeah. um, in order to sort of navigate through the world, especially as young people. That's what our parents are. Our parents mm-hmm. are embodied values and projected ideas for us for the most part. Yeah, for better or worse, yeah. So I take that. You know, if I need to be that, yeah. for some kids, I'll take that. Um, and maybe I can, like, embody the idea. Maybe the value that I embody is hopefully a perceived, open, honest, vulnerable, inquisitive thing that maybe I do have to perform a little bit, paradoxically, to provide it, you know, yeah. that, I, that I have to maybe slightly publicly become the idea of myself to honestly get across what needs to happen. I mean, that's just old age of just like, you know, what is absolutely true, which is versus what is practical, you know? Mm-hmm. What's probably absolutely uh-huh. true is that maybe, you know, role models aren't needed. Um, but well, they're gonna, but like, no matter what you talk about, you're asking kids not to admire people, and that's not gonna happen. No, and I've always actually always thought it was really interesting and maybe really important, uh, you know, you, you, you I feel like there's a lot of artists who, as they're trying to figure out who they are and what kind of artist they are, they go through a period of emulating their heroes. And it's through that that they figure out what their own voice is. You know, I mean, there's a long line of people who, mm, you know, yeah, it's oh, like yeah, of course. I mean, Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie or, you know, Patti Smith. It's like the people, they very consciously choose their heroes yeah. and emulate them. And so you might go through a, a period of being derivative, but that's that, that's just a process. That's part of the process of figuring out what their own authentic voice is. Right. Right. And, and the way in which I think I would interrogate the idea of a role model isn't the base idea of a role model. It's the way in which it's weighted in our culture. The room that's given for role models to be singers and actors and writers and not other substantial people that do substantial right. things. Like that, hospice that, workers. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's that, that's yeah. like sort of my issue. I'm saying my father's, you know, works in construction. My mother's a nurse. And I'm like... There should be some type of cultural representation for people other than just these, like, that, that's TV my issue is that stars. all kids' role <laughs> yeah. models are people in the arts. And, and yeah. um, that just kind of turns what I think it's kind of just turned a culture in on itself. And we've kind of lost uh, sight of what's real and tangible. And you have a bunch right. of kids. Of Right, teachers Wanted should to be, be famous. Paid. Teachers should be paid. You know, if teachers were held as as high, uh, things would make more sense than well, it, reality or, TV stars. Yeah, if 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 kids just yeah, for both sides, people should want to get into the other stuff for the right reasons, and people should want to get into the arts for the right reasons. Which is not that if you get into the arts, you can be a role model. It's more if you can get into the arts, you can make <laughs> art. If you want right. to do that, you know. Right. Um, and also, you can get into the arts anywhere, anytime. And the thing to admire about artists or creative people, I hope, is what they make, which, you know, and not uh, how they reign over their uh, dominion of attention. Yeah. That's a good, that's well, that's well said. Like hey, that. yeah. licking cubs. <laughs> okay, this is probably the most important question I have. What, what, do you have a favorite body of water? Oh, Wenham Lake, which is where I, near where I grew up. And actually, 
back in like the 16th, 17th century, was known as the best ice in the world. And they would ship blocks of ice on sawdust back to England from Wenham Lake in Massachusetts. It was considered like the purest, coldest, purest, yeah. most, most refreshing ice in the, yeah. in the world. It also sounds like a f- lie that circulated my town <laughs> that I'm just realizing is not true when it's I said brand- it out. Yeah, but all- <laughs> I believed it. <laughs> well, Bo, as an American master in the making, uh, thanks for being here. And now we'll leave you with some words from one of Bo's comic inspirations, George Carlin, recorded in 2006. You know, this is all about self-expression. Every, I mean, whether you tap dance or these, you know, you throw plates in the air and catch them, or you sing, write a book, paint a painting, we all know, it's all self-expression, get it out. I wanna sing my song in some form. Comedians have no particular duty or purpose. All they have to do is be true to themselves and make people laugh. But your purpose isn't getting it out. If you happen to make them laugh along the way, you can have a career. If they don't laugh at when you get your self-expression, then that's a dead end and you don't do that anymore. If they laugh and it works and there's a circle, you make them laugh, they fill you with energy, you get a little proud of that, you run through things more. It's all a circle, uh, as in most live performing. That's all a comedian has to do. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Sunishima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. The 2006 interview with George Carlin is from the archives of the PBS series Make Him Laugh, The Funny Business of America. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And please give us a rating or review. It really does help. See you in a couple weeks.